Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. You know, if I were to make up a list of the masses throughout the year that would attract the biggest crowds, I would, you know, Christmas Eve, 4 p.m., Easter Sunday. I would never have put the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time on that list. Big fans of the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time. Coming out strong, holy smokes. We got people up in the choir loft. Hello, box seats up in the choir loft, this is great. And standing room only, I don't know, fourth Sunday, big Beatitude fans, all right. Of course we got such a great crowd this morning because we are kicking off Catholic Schools Week and we got our open house after Mass today that's over at the school. More about that later in the homily. But we have such awesome things to reflect on this weekend in this fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time. We are in the midst of Jesus' first homily, his first sermon in Matthew's Gospel. We're dropped right in in the beginning. It's pretty incredible. Jesus' first homily is what we're reflecting on today with his Beatitudes. It's where he's just announced the kingdom, and now he sits down to teach the crowds. Massive crowds, like the fourth Sunday in ordinary time-sized crowds. And he's sharing from his heart. He's unpacking so much. He's challenging them deeply, challenging these deeply held viewpoints of Israel, you know, by saying things like, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. He's claiming this new authority over the law, over the Torah, and it must have been startling and quite something for the people listening to him. And then just like Moses, he gives a list. He gives a list of instructions for people to follow. But his list is very different than Moses' list, right? It's very different. Where God, through Moses, he gave the Decalogue, right? This, the Ten Commandments, the moral imperatives, these requirements for maintaining freedom. Remember, of course, like the the Decalogue comes in the context of the Exodus, right? So God has liberated his people, he's delivered them, and now he gives them these laws which are not designed to impinge upon their freedom, but they're the very conditions for the freedom. It's as if God is saying, okay, if you would be free, then at the very least, you have to, like, keep holy the Sabbath. At the very least, you can't be murdering people. At the very least, you can't be lying and cheating and defrauding. At the very least... You can't let your heart be filled with envy and jealousy. At the very least, if you would maintain your freedom, these are the things you have to do. The Ten Commandments aren't like the high bar of sanctity. They're the lowest bar for decency. They're the lowest bar. And he's saying, if you would maintain your freedom, you have to at least do this. So now Jesus, the new Moses, ascends the mountain just like the old Moses, and he opens his mouth to teach his people, and he gives them these beatitudes. It's so instructive, it's so powerful, it's so important for us to notice that these aren't moral imperatives of things to do or things to avoid. Instead, what he's giving us in these Beatitudes, it's as if he's sketching, he's sketching an image of what happiness looks like. He's talking about the blessed life. That's what the Beatitudes are. It's, it's a description of the happy life. Like, this is what his first sermon is about. And this is so significant for us, that his first sermon, when the God-man, when Jesus, the teacher, opens his mouth to begin teaching, he does not give a homily about morals, about doctrine, about dogma, about liturgy, about worship. 
It's not a homily about how to get to heaven or what happens after you die. His first sermon is about happiness. His first sermon is about happiness. It's about human joy. It's about flourishing. He's telling us how to find that life. And it looks nothing like what we thought it would look, right? So most of us, we use the phrase like, I'm, I'm, I'm just blessed. What we usually mean is like, I've got a lot of good things going on in my world. Good job, good family, material possessions, things are, things are going good. That's, that has nothing to do with happiness. That has nothing to do with the blessed life. Jesus is inverting everything upside down, that he's, he's inserting himself into the very equation for the search for happiness. That happiness now is found in relationship to him, so much so that even in the midst of your grieving, even in the midst of persecution and mourning and poverty, if I have Jesus, then I have everything. I have the unum necessarium, the one thing necessary for the happy life. It's found in relation to his love. He makes himself the condition for happiness and flourishing. Like this question, this question that Jesus addresses with this first homily, this question about happiness, is perhaps the most universal human question. How do I find the happy life? What is flourishing as a human being? Like every religion, every culture, every civilization, going back to the ancient Greek philosophers, Aristotle begins his metaphysical investigation by asking that question, by naming that reality. Every man seeks happiness. And Jesus is saying, it's found in relationship to me. This, this right here, this whole question about the good life flourishing, this is where I see Catholic education playing such a huge role. This is where I see Catholic education playing such a huge role today. So, like, the history of Catholic education in our country, it's a fascinating story, and I'm going to tell you the whole story right now, so buckle up. Just kidding. Not going to do that. The whole story of Catholic education in our country, that whole story lies way outside the scope of this homily. So a few broad brushstrokes will have to suffice here. So it was the middle of the 19th century when the first plenary council of bishops convened for a council in Baltimore. The council of Baltimore, right? They came in 1852 to address some serious issues. That one of the reasons that they got together was because in the country at that time, in the mid-19th century, there was strong anti-Catholicism that was just deep in the bloodstream of this country. And they were trying to figure out how to address this, how to move forward. In particular in that, there was the deeper issue that they were trying to figure out how can we keep our children Catholic because what was happening is so many Catholic children were going to these other schools that were being educated by wonderful, well-meaning Protestants, but Catholics were being evangelized out of the church. So much so, just as a point of, you know, history and interest, that Archbishop John Carroll, who's the first bishop of this country, when he died, none of his own nieces or nephews in this country were Catholics. They had all left the church. Every one of John Carroll's nieces and nephews had left the church. So they gathered to look at this question in response to this and in an effort to keep Catholic kids Catholic, at the council, the bishops said, okay, every Catholic church, every Catholic parish ought to have a parochial school attached to it. That's why in this country, 
If you look at, if you look at the old neighborhoods, if you look at the old, our old churches, every Catholic church had a Catholic school, had a convent, had like, that's what it meant to be a parish. Because the idea was, if we can educate our kids, then we can keep them Catholic. We wanted to educate our own children. And what happened was nuns and brothers by the tens of thousands flocked to this country to form and educate our young people. And for the most part, for the most part, they did a fantastic job. It worked. This plan, this strategy began to work for a while. And then the culture began to shift and change as we moved into the middle of the 19th century. That those Judeo-Christian values that were just in the bloodstream, that were in the culture of the time, all those buttressing values that supported Christianity began to erode and fade. All of that began to go away. And then this foundation of our civilization, the foundation of our culture just kind of dropped out from beneath us. That's what we're facing. So like we face today a very similar situation as that of the Baltimore fathers in the 19th century because our young people today, just like then, are also being evangelized, aggressively evangelized and drawn out of the Catholic Church. But it's not the Protestant brothers and sisters who are doing this. It's an aggressively secular culture that is wildly successful at evangelizing our young people and drawing them out of the faith long before they're even adults. It's beginning very early. There's a, ma a fascinating study by the U.S. bishops called Going, Going, Gone that looks at disaffiliation, how kids leave the Catholic Church. And it says that most adults, when questioned, when did you start to leave the faith, they say 12 years old. Even though they might still be in our schools, even though they might still be in our pews, interiorly, something has happened that they're beginning to drift then. And we as a church for the past many decades, we've been kind of looking at this, seeing the kids leaving the church, seeing the numbers declining, and it's if we just, we don't know what to do. We just kind of stand back and we just shout at them saying, no, no, stay. We've got all of these wonderful rules for you to follow. And if you follow them, you can be good and then go to heaven, maybe. And we've got donuts and banners and crayons. Aren't we so great? <laughs> like, is that all we really have to offer? Is that what it really is about? Is that really the good news of the faith that, like, Come to the church. We've got all these wonderful rules for you to follow. And if you follow these rules, then you can be a good person. Is that the proposal? Is that the good news? That is not attractive because it's not even the good news. The good news is something so astounding that God became flesh to fight on our behalf, to rescue us from the powers of sin and death and hell. And not only that, he looks at us and he bends the knee and says, will you come and spend eternity with me? Will you let me flood your heart and satisfy the deepest desires that you have, the most treasured things you long for? That is what we have to offer the modern world. That is what we have to offer our young people, our kids. In other words, we have the path to, to happiness and flourishing and joy. We have beatitude on offer. Our messaging is so often terrible, but the message is incredible. You know, one of the elements, one of the reasons why Catholic education was so powerful in the past century is because the ones who were doing the educating were sold out radical disciples of Jesus. They were men and women 
consecrated men and women who found in Jesus the pearl of great price, the treasure buried in the field, and said, you are worth everything. I will give you my life. These consecrated men and women of all these different religious communities and orders, they proclaimed through the witness of their very life that there is a reality who is worthy of your everything, and his name is Jesus. They were witnesses before they were teachers. You know, one of the things that I said over and over and over again when I was, I was invited to be part of this Catholic school's think tank. I was invited by the bishop to be part of this, to chair one of the committees, to think about how to revitalize, to re-engage our Catholic schools. One of the things I said over and over again is that our diocesan Catholic schools, the schools of the future, they need to undergo this deeper conversion where our wonderful lay teachers the wonderful people who educate in our schools, they need to become even more sold-out disciples of Jesus who are joyful evangelizers, who bear into the world the evidence that life with Jesus is better. They bear into the world the evidence of beatitude, that being friends with this person brings into your life and into the lives of other people a joy that nothing in this world can account for. Our Catholic schools today are playing a very pivotal role, not just in keeping kids Catholic, not just in trying to keep kids Catholic. The stakes are much higher. We're now trying to merely, we're trying to keep our kids human. We're trying to pass on what does it mean to be human. Like that is the battle that is waging in our world today, that we are forgetting as a culture, as a civilization, faster and faster how to be human what it means to be human, what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be a woman, a boy, a girl, and the goodness in both of those. And only Jesus Christ can fully reveal man to himself. He's the only one who can fully answer that question. And in some ways, this is the great gift of Catholic education today, that it is education not merely in the doctrines or the dogmas of the faith, it's education and what does it mean to be human, which apart from Jesus is not a complete answer. Jesus has radically changed the answer. What does it mean to be human? Like, every child that comes into our school, every child that comes into this world is not merely destined for an amazing career. Every child is destined for a glory that if we saw it now, we would be tempted to worship. You ask the question, the child comes into the classroom, what is this thing called a student? <laughs> is it merely something that's destined for career? Or is this something that's destined for eternal ecstasy in union with the Trinity? If that's what this thing is called a student, then that means I have to change the way that I approach this child. That it's not simply about education, it's now about formation. It's about introducing this person to the person of Jesus Christ and helping them see that everything else that they're learning finds harmony in relationship to Jesus. Let me say a word about our school, our Catholic school, Sacred Heart of Jesus School. We have some amazing teachers, amazing, amazing educators, a lot of them who are here at Mass today doing an amazing job, absolutely their best, not only seeking to educate, but to love and to form your kids, our parish's kids. 
And they're so creative in thinking of new ways to bring the gospel, not just in religion classes, but in every other aspect. They, the teachers launched a new enrichment elective this year that gives students in fourth through eighth grade these amazing opportunities once a week to be part of incredible classes, photography classes. I didn't take photography class when I was in fourth grade, but our kids are getting to do these things. The school newspaper, Tiger Times, Check out Tiger Times. It is absolutely incredible. Some of the articles that these kids are writing are so amazing. So amazing. Teresa Gorbach, you're doing such a great job with that. We've got Marian Art. We've got design. We've got drumming. We've got event planning. I'd, I'd like to know what event planning is, actually. Um, someone could, one of the fourth graders could, you know, be my junior secretary or something. I don't know. These are just a few of the options, and they're, they're constantly thinking of new things. Here's the thing, right? Non-Catholic schools have amazing teachers and they also have amazing programs. So what's the difference? It should be clear, it should be obvious that the difference is Jesus. And I'm not talking about cheesy Jesus. I'm not talking about Jesus, buddy Jesus, Jesus who wants to just kick a soccer ball with you. You know, poster Jesus, it's on, you know, the walls. That's not the Jesus I'm talking about. I'm talking about the real Jesus, not the Jesus who just wants you to be nice. I'm talking about the real Jesus, like Aslan Jesus, who's not a safe lion, but he's good. That Jesus. That Jesus is really part of our school. He's the integrating principle of our school. He's the source and summit of our school. Like the Eucharistic Lord is, is radically changing the lives of our kids. Find me another school where middle schoolers are begging for opportunities to go to adoration. It doesn't exist. Our kids are encountering him during the school day and their lives are being shaken up because they're discovering that Jesus isn't just simply isolated to religion class, but he is present in every other area and dimension of the school's life. They're learning to see and to think like disciples. That's happening in our school. So, Father Joe and I want to invite all of you, all of you, fourth Sunday of Ordinary Time devotees, we want to invite all of you over to the school after this Mass for our open house. It's 1130 to 1.30. If you're wondering, what do I get out of this? One word. Donut Sunday. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> okay, I know that's two words. All right, it's one word in my heart, all right? So don't eat all the donuts till before I get over there. Okay, but if that's not a good enough selling point, I'll tell you this. You're going to be treated to an amazing Living Saints exhibit with our third graders who are going to tell you about the saints that they are embodying. You're going to have a chance to listen about some Eucharistic miracles that our middle schoolers are going to present on, modern Eucharistic miracles. You're going to hear in their testimonies how Jesus, the Eucharistic Lord, is transforming their lives, and you're going to get to see some beautiful things throughout the school. Also, check out the newly renovated chapel. I hear there might be prizes in the chapel, so make sure you check that out. All right, let's bring this back full circle and land this plane. So Jesus, he ascends the mountain to share with the crowds his heart. He's inviting them to a whole new way of being, a whole new way of seeing happiness, flourishing. What does it mean to be human? He's inviting them to discover it all. Because that whole thing of happiness, it's up for grabs and it's under attack in our world today because there is an enemy. The enemy is the enemy and he's the enemy of our beatitude. He's the enemy of our flourishing. He's the enemy of our happiness. 
And he wants to throw in our path all sorts of counterfeits that lead us astray. But our school, like this is why I'm so proud of what happens in our school. We aren't a perfect school. No school is a perfect school. But man, what is happening in our school is absolutely incredible. I see our kids learning to walk this path of authentic joy that comes from real friendship with Jesus. Nothing is accomplished overnight, but you can see the sprouts coming up through the grass, that the harvest, this abundant harvest that the Lord has promised us is coming, and it's coming in our school. It's amazing. Amen.